to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 78 and our first episode of 2022. After a happy childhood in South Africa, Shona Fleming was brought back to Glasgow by her parents and found the transition difficult. Life at school became uncomfortable with taunts about her background. Her education stalled and Shona abandoned any thoughts of higher education. A series of junior jobs followed, in which she always worked hard, but repeatedly found herself back at square one. By this point, she was, by her own admission, developing a chip on her shoulder. But what great motivation! Shona decided to study for a degree in London and discover what she was best at. That determination has since led to her becoming Chief Executive of Scotscare, a charity whose origins stretch back more than 400 years to King James of Scotland, and England, and which now looks after Scots in London facing difficulties. And it's a position that Shona juggles with also being Chief Executive of Borderline, a charity supporting homeless Scots. Shona's passion for her role, her team, and the people they look after shines through, and as we start another no doubt challenging year, it's good to hear what's being done for Scots who may be struggling with particularly tough circumstances. I've been keeping this episode up my sleeve. It was recorded just before Christmas. And if you enjoy it, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Scottish Business Network on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the podcast platform of your choice. Shona Fleming, great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm absolutely fine. I am, like everyone else, uh, working from home. And where is home? Home is in Dulwich um, in London. So, Shona, you had an uh, interesting sounding childhood split between Glasgow and South Africa. So how did those experiences shape you and what was family life like for you? Um, I mean, I have to say I've got very fond memories um, of growing up in South Africa. And, you know, when we left, it was just around about the time that apartheid ended Um, And I have to say, as a child living there, I think I was probably aware, but sort of oblivious to the sort of, you know, the social problems, the the very Mm. real social problems that were happening. And it wasn't really until I came back to Britain that I realised, you know, like just how serious um, some of those issues where whilst I was living there but I think it'd be safe to say I was quite removed from that I think in terms of how that experience shaped me I think it gave me I suppose my parents gave me a sort of a confidence that you don't have to stay in one place um that you can move around and I think that applies to sort of a where you live Um, where you work as well. Um, I think it's just about being confident and taking, you know, a risk um, or a chance in life that's given to you. My dad was a heating engineer and basically he was offered, you know, a contract and that was it. I was seven, I've got a brother, he was three. Um, My parents were only in their late 20s and off we went. Um, And I had quite an amazing time I have to say quite privileged actually time and then coming back (laughs) was really it was a bit of a shock um I have to say um I had been at all-girls school had quite a good education came back and went straight into a um 
state school um, co-ed <laughs> at, the age, at the age of 16. Um, so I think I just about got to grips with boys and then was, wow, all of a sudden half my class were boys. And, you know, so it was as a 16-year-old, um, mm. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't say it was it was really difficult. Um, I mean, it was sad. I left all my friends mm. in um, South Africa, and then I had to make new friends, and I had to make them really quickly. Um, I had to fit in. Um, I was a bit of a novelty when I joined school. Um, so, yeah, I had lots of nicknames. Zola Bud <laughs> <laughs> was one of them. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think basically how it shaped me was just um, my parents' example of let's just, just go, this is a good opportunity. Um, and that stayed with me throughout my life. Right. Yeah, it must have been a difficult experience. But as you say, probably strengthened your, your character so I mean, when, around the time you came back to Glasgow at that point were you thinking about what you might like to do for a career? Well I was um, but I have to say aged 16 um, I came back in my GCSE year um, my education in some ways was two years ahead of Britain and then in other sub- subjects behind so they decided to put me in the year below where I should have been, um, which was absolutely fine. We were ha- we were happy with that. Um, but to be honest with you, coming back as a, you know it was a difficult time all round um, living in South Africa, and my parents made the decision to come back. But to be honest with you, in hindsight, and I'm sure they would agree with me, it sort of ruined my education. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I stayed on, I did my GCSEs and my A-levels, and then I left and went straight to work. Um, but that has had its bonuses as well, I have to say. <laughs> Not all doom and gloom. Right, well, what are the, the bonuses of that? Was well, it? I mean, I think basically I left school and went to work rather than going to university. Mm. And had I stayed in South Africa, the natural step would have been to go straight to university. And because each and every job that I got, you know, as as a youngster, I was always aware that I had to do my best. I had to have a you know perfect work ethic. I had to demonstrate you know, that I could learn, that I could pick things up. So I always had to prove myself. Um, And I remember my first interview and this lady actually said that to me. It was for an office junior job um, in a surveyors in Charing Cross. And she said to me, if you prove yourself to me, um, we'll keep you on. You know, and and as a 17-year-old, that was, okay. I need to, you know, respectful of you know an older um lady who was going to be my manager and I just thought right I really need to prove that I can do this so that they'll keep me and and that again it sort of stayed with me um and I was I was promoted there in that organization but then we had the recession of the 90s um in the building trade and I was made redundant um, I was basically told on the Friday afternoon alongside about nine other people and we were out the door within 10 minutes. Um, it was 
a shock. Um, I can remember going home in the bus and crying and all the rest of it. And then I quickly got myself another job, um, Glasgow Legal Aid Board. Um, and then, unfortunately, the same thing happened. They shut down Glasgow Legal Aid Board about two years later. I get made redundant again or offered a job in Edinburgh. Um, and at that time, my salary wasn't good enough to be able to afford, you know, the commute between Glasgow and Edinburgh. Mm. But there was a sort of a... What was starting to take shape was this position I always found myself in of, unluckily, I would say, being made redundant and having to start at the bottom again because I'd never gone to university, just gone back to that point. So I never had that piece of paper um, to demonstrate that I could come in at a certain level. So yet again, um, I'd been made redundant, first two jobs, and then I joined social services. And I joined social services probably 91 thereabouts. And again, I had to start at the bottom. Now, interestingly, I was offered for that job, I was offered a few jobs. I was going for interviews and this job was a week-to-week contract. And I thought, okay, what do I want to do? I do want to work with people. Um, I'm just going to go for it. I'm not going to take the permanent jobs that I've been offered. I'm just going to take the risk. And I think what I was talking about earlier on in terms of moving abroad, moving back, being used to... Um, the sort of a uncertainty of where you might be. I just felt and you know gut instinct that this was the right thing to do, and I'd listened to those that had told me work hard, prove yourself, and and you'll get on. And sure enough, um, that week to week contract turned into a permanent job, and then I worked my way. Um, through social services to a middle sort of management position um, before coming to London. So what what prompted that move down to London? Well, I um, it wasn't work for me. Um, it was actually my ex-husband um, who decided um, or, or was offered a position in London. My parents were already here, bizarrely. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's normally the other way around. Parents might follow children rather than children following <laughs> their parents. Um, but yet again, you know, they'd come back to Glasgow, they'd then move to London. Um, so it was an easy move. I had been managing a child protection project in Glasgow and had set up Glasgow's um, out of hours community care services. So it'd be fair to say I was a bit burnt out. Um, came to London and decided to take six months off and then got bored. Um, at that point, I didn't have um, any children and I thought, right, OK, I really need to get back in um, to the swing of things. But here I was again, having to possibly start at the bottom. So this would be the third time that I had moved um, jobs and again, didn't have that piece of paper and thought, right, okay, where am I going to work? Saw this advert for Scotscare, um, the Royal Scottish Corporation, and they were looking for um, a helpline operator. 
And I thought, right, okay, you know, it's not my skill set, um, but I need to connect with the Scots community. Um, in London, it is a lonely place, bit of a cliche, but, you know, I'd been here in London for six months and I don't think I'd really made any great connections. So I thought, all right, let's go for it. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do a six-month stint for them um, just to get myself out of the house um, and connected with other Scots. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure at the time they recognised, actually my predecessor um, now, the chief executive then, they, they recognised, you know, what was on my CV and what I had done um, but they took me on and then within a week I got promoted um, to another post um, that, you know, involved assessments of clients. And, and that's really what I used to do and manage staff. Um, so very quickly, Scots Care sort of, I was motivated because they recognised, um, you know, my experience and my skills. And that was one of the reasons and had then continued to be one of the reasons why I stayed there and have stayed there for so long. Yeah, and we're going to talk about Scots Care a lot more shortly. But um, yeah. you, you also, I mean, shortly after this, you, you returned to learning, didn't you? So you studied social work for a bit and then moved on to yep. four years master's in psychotherapy. So was this fact that you you never gone to university kind of chipping away at you yes. to an extent yeah absolutely um so again you know starting the um the job at Scottscare that was the point because that was really um you know helpline operators are are fantastic but it wasn't my skill set and here I was you know starting I had to sort of a work hard again and prove the point and you know get myself up that ladder again and I thought right come on Shona you know you need to um try to get that piece of paper as I keep saying um and, and I'll be honest I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I knew that my experience um and by that point 15 years um, in terms of working with people, I knew that that was in lots of ways worth an awful lot more than a piece of paper. But anyway, I decided um, social services and welfare of people um, was my thing. So I thought, well, it makes perfect sense. Let me just go and get qualified as a social worker. Um, so I started out doing that, get through the first year, through the second year, um, and then I thought, do you really want to be a social worker? Um, you know, I'd been in that business for a long time, I'd seen a lot, um, and I thought maybe this is not the thing for me to be doing. And I met a client, actually. It was through a client that I was working with, and he had chronic drug and alcohol problems, um, masking quite serious mental health problem and he had had unbelievably um, 11 detoxes and he tried rehab which is generally anything from 6 to 18 months um, in a rehabilitation centre. He tried that three times. So 
I actually ended up meeting with him. I was dealing with other practical things for him, but I started meeting with him once a week. Never really realised what I was doing. (laughs) You know, it was almost that therapy session Mm. once a week for him and because he needed to meet with somebody he would go into rehab and we'd get to week six it would break down because he had to sit in a group and he couldn't hold back the tears and he would be ashamed and that would be the end of rehab so I sat with him for a year we did life story work and he then went off um didn't it didn't it just happen as easily as I'm saying, but went into detox, cleaned up, and went on to do an eighteen month um stint in rehab. Right. And the whole time and working with this client, I was saying to him, What are you frightened of? What are you frightened of? And then I asked myself the same question. Why do you think there was something about maybe not being good enough to go mm-hmm. to uni? Um, and I thought, here am I asking this very vulnerable, damaged client, and yet I haven't taken the step myself. Right. So actually, while I was doing that work with him, I enrolled um, for uh, four years. Um, I decided to change tact, ended my social work degree, and took up the four-year psychotherapy degree at Birkbeck. And, and you're still working at Scots Care while this is going on, I presume, you? Yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. Um, because that, you know, psychotherapy is one of these degrees. It's not a full-time um, mm. degree deliberately because you really have to engage on a very, very deep level. You have to go in your own therapy um, and, yeah, it's deliberately over a four-year period. So I was able to do both. Great. You got the piece of paper, and what what did you get ultimately from that experience, do you think? I mean, I didn't. Then he might think that, you know, doing a degree like that, I would then stay with Scots Care for a period of time and maybe leave and go off and become a therapist. But actually, um, my final year was organisational dynamics, and that the the whole process. I mean, ultimately, this was the degree that I was meant to do. I wholeheartedly believe that. But the the degree itself, um, the sort of uh, the content, what you learn, what you learn about yourself, what you learn about others has definitely served me well in the boardroom. <laughs> so, you know, it's um, it's helped me to manage my staff, um, I think, far better than I ever did. Um, I would, you know, I thought I was, I was a good enough um, manager, but it gives you a level of confidence. It gives you a confidence to be able to talk about the big white elephant in the room right. at all times and to be able to do that in a collaborative way and a sort of in a nice way without there being any need for conflict. And, right. and that's really the way that I conduct myself. And I suppose I expect that from others as well. It's just about communication. Mm-hmm. Well, sounds really interesting. And I think a lot of people in business could probably benefit from that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, I, I, think, I think there is a slant towards 
emotional intelligence rather than, right. you know, the full-on mm. aggression that people associate with leaders, um, chief execs. I think if you sort of lean in and, and dig deep, there there's ways to communicate. You, you just have to listen, really. Now, uh, moving on to, to Scots Care, um, it's not an organisation I knew a lot about. And I, I was stunned to discover it's actually been going for, I think, about 400 years. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. You t- tell us a bit about the history. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, today we're a very modern, um, you know, 21st century charity, but it has its origins. It goes way back to 1603, um, essentially when James VI of Scotland became James I of England. And at that time, lots of Scots, many Scots, um, followed their king south. Now, the problem was, um, and obviously in later years, you know, you had the plague, the fire. Um, The problem here was that if those Scots fell on hard times, so if the breadwinner... Um, was sick um, or there was no work. Scots had no access to parish poor relief. So these, so they were dying um, and starving basically. Um, And these wealthy Scots would meet in a tavern in Covent Garden and they started up the Scots box and they decided that they would look after their own. Um, and obviously during the plague, um, the biggest role that they played um, was to bury Scots um, during the plague. So, you know, that's essentially its its origins. And, I mean, that can be traced back. You know, it's not a fairy tale um, mm. that is actually the beginnings of, and it's a bit of a tongue twister, I have to say, <laughs> the original name, um, and actually the name that's on our Royal, Char- Royal Charter, um, the Queen's our patron, is the Scottish Hospital of the Foundation of King Charles II. <laughs> well... <laughs> Yeah, tell me. It took me a while to be able to just um, say that. Um, And then they thought, you know, that was a bit of a tongue twister. So it then became um, the Royal Scottish Corporation. And then about, let's say, about 18 years ago, we decided that whilst, you know, having the word royal um, is a great and good thing um, to have in our name, a lot of people thought that we were like an insurance company or you know so we tried to come up with something that was actually a staff member that came up with Scots Care um that's more says more about what we do we care we're Scots caring for other Scots so that's the trademark now is Scots Care what a great story, though, the background. Yeah. So can you tell us about what, what, what does the organisation actually sort of do and offer now? 
So, I mean, I would say, um, and, and we'll maybe touch very quickly on um, Borderline later on, which is another charity for Scots, um, we are essentially a one-stop shop for Scots in London um, that are in need um, of services and support. So we look after you if you are first, second or third generation and need help. And the way we have three client groups, um, our priority, um, we developed a new strategy three years ago, the priority is very clearly children and families. Um, but we also help older people and working age adults. But the, the focus is and our resources um, are focused on children and families in the hope that the child that we help today does not come back through our door as an adult because that's what we're seeing. We're seeing cycles of poverty, low educational attainment, third generation unemployment um, and everything else that goes with that, as you can imagine, mental health, drug and alcohol, um, abuse. So the resources are, first and foremost, our clients are 99% on state benefit. So the financial support that we provide is crucial, just as an initial. Um, That might be what somebody comes to us for. Um, They need a a new bed. Um, But once we start that assessment, we then cover the whole person. So we look at about nine different areas. Um, I'll not go into them, but, you know, they cover what I've just spoke about, mental health, debt, drug and alcohol um, issues, housing issues. Um, It's literally a a holistic, an organisation that provides, provides holistic services. It's a wraparound for a Scot with whatever it's very personalized whatever that person actually needs we'll either provide it ourselves or we will find somebody that can do it so the criteria is being a scot it's not about disability or you know so we're not a charity that's disability or mental health or whatever we are all things to scots and what is it about the organization that has led you to devote such a, a large part of your career to it I think, I mean, when I joined, um, I mean, I'm, I think I'm in my 19th year. Um, when I joined, I think it would be fair to say, and I don't think anybody would be unhappy with me saying this, it was a very, very old-fashioned grant-giving charity. Um, and I had come from a career in social services, and I knew that just giving people money um, was really just a stick in plaster, to be honest with you. You really need to get down to the deep-rooted causes of why they're coming to you for financial support. So the reason I stayed was because my predecessor um, and you know the management team, the board of trustees, there was a level, a very nice level, of freedom to innovate, to be creative, 
to uncover the real need rather than just grants, which meant we went into service development mode and developed things like an advocacy service um, to help people have their voices heard if they had a complaint, a psychotherapy service for adults. We just developed a new children and families psychotherapy service um, because I think mental health is at the core of everything. If people don't have good mental health, they are not going to be able to move on with their lives. So it's been about freedom for me. I have an amazing board and, you know, before I became chief executive, a very good chief executive that let me, yeah, be creative and develop a lot of these services that we've needed. So it's been a pleasure for me um, to have that resource, to have that support, to be able to do the best that we can for the people that we exist to help. And Shona, what are some of the, the main challenges that, uh, that you're facing now and some of the opportunities as well? I mean, I would say in terms of challenges, the one challenge that there has always been um, in the past and going forward is communications. Um, it's the you know organisational communications, the profile, raising the profile of the charity. Um, it was the first thing that I did as chief executive um, with all these lovely services and nobody knows about them, um, which is quite demotivating. So the first thing I tackled was our communication strategy. We've now, we're, we're on a second communication strategy, but we're in London helping Scots. It'd be a lot easier <laughs> if, if we were in Scotland helping Scots. So... You know, you, you make contact with, um, let's say, a number of social services or housing departments in London. You tell people what you do. But London has a very transient workforce. So before you know it, all the work that you've done to build up a referral base sort of a disappears. Um, I meet, you know, professionally um, and through other networks, the Scots Network in London, of which there are many um, Scottish organisations in London. I come across people all the time and they still say, I've never heard of you. Right. That is my single biggest challenge, is to find ways and find people that want to help us raise our profile. Um, so that that is... Definitely. Um, the in terms of opportunities, you know, we I am chief executive of Borderline, um, and I think in some respects there are ways in which those two charities um, in the future could potentially come together. Um, because as, as it stands right now, operationally, um, the staff cover, most staff cover both charities. But once we get to board level, two completely different charities, two completely different income streams. Um, so, sorry, Shona, just to, to clarify people listening. So Borderline is uh, supports homeless Scots. That's yes. the end with that, yeah. Yeah. So, so really, the in a sense... 
the borderline is for homeless Scots, it's very frontline again. It is um, rough sleepers. Um, we have an outreach service and it's it's the hard end of homelessness. It is very much people that are on the streets are on the cusp of going onto the streets and a lot of our work is with entrenched rough sleepers. So when I say entrenched, I mean anything from two years to beyond 20 years, which is quite incredible when you think about it, that we're working with people that are some of London's most entrenched rough sleepers. And and as you can imagine, the problems there, the complex support needs um, of some of our clients. So, yeah, so I think some one of the opportunities for um, both charities is to look at, you know, the potential for a real um, collaboration in the future, which will streamline, you know, our other... Um, it, it will streamline administration. Um, it will almost certainly become that one-stop shop for Scots. After working in London for so long, Shona, what would you say that you miss most about Scotland? Oh, you know, I, th- I think it's something that a lot of people will say. You know, the minute I, I hit Glasgow, you know, when I go home, uh, and I, start, I call it home, um, even after all this time, I still will say I'm going home. Um, it's just something, it's about the people, to be honest with you, um, you just strike up a conversation just naturally with somebody or somebody just starts talking to you, whether it's on the bus or, you know, it, it's just, I don't know, there's just something really soothing about being home. Um, friends, family, just being familiar with everything. I don't know the smell is an interesting one for me. I don't know <laughs> if, if that sounds weird. But I think, like, for me, like, it's funny because, do you know what? I think Glasgow's got a smell and I think Edinburgh's got a smell. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, yeah, I kind of know what you mean. I mean, London certainly does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and well, I have... A, a mixture um, of, you know, different smells. It's, it's it's quite evocative when you arrive in a place. You often get that when you arrive in a foreign country, don't you? You get, you get off the absolutely. plane. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it's either, you know, a smell that's warm or cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we know what the, the Glasgow and Edinburgh ones are in terms of the temperature spectrum. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um now, I'm just wondering, you know, pandemic restrictions apart, because yep. that's obviously all kicking off again, but what does a, a perfect weekend look like for you? Perfect weekend is that <clears throat> the laptop is away um, for me and also for my other half. Um, obviously, we won't include children in that because they've always got their laptops and their tech and everything around them. <coughs> but almost having nothing planned, my life is planned. Um, you know, to yeah, 
too much um, and loving your life by a diary um, every day. When I get to the weekend, I just want to have the freedom to be spontaneous. And we are a spontaneous family. So whilst we have not, we will have nothing planned for a weekend, we're together. Um, we will almost certainly be out, um, whether that's a walk, dinner, breakfast, the cinema, um, we will still do things. It, London life, I think, is very different. In lots of respects, you don't stay in. There's a market to go to. There, There's food shopping. We like to shop local. Um, so that means a trip down Lordship Lane um, to buy whatever we need from the butchers and, you know, the fishmongers. Then we'll end up somewhere for lunch. But none of this is planned. And I think that's it's the free flow of not being boxed in at the weekend and just chilling out. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Now, um, I always like to ask this question. If, if you could give one piece of advice to the young Shona Fleming leaving school, what would it be? Don't second guess yourself. Listen to your gut instinct because at the lovely age of 51, <laughs> <laughs> I can look back now and say that probably eight, nine times out of 10, I was right with my gut instinct and I should never have doubted myself. Um, I just, that is the one thing, being worried about doing the right thing. Um, yeah, don't doubt yourself. Um, just go for it. Great advice. Now, we're going to finish with five quick questions. Are you ready? Yep. What's the first record you ever bought? Queen, Another One Bites the Dust. Good one. Do you have an alternative fantasy career? Interestingly, my fascination with smell, um, a perfumer. Ah, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's definitely a theme here. Um, yep. what, what is your favourite place in the world? Um, difficult one to choose so I'm going to go with two very quickly Paris Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe horse racing every year used to go been put off for the last two years but I love it Paris but Vietnam um, is probably my most fantastic place well probably both quite evocative on the smell front as well yep (laughs) Um, what is your signature dish in the kitchen uh, I've got a new one. Um, used to be Gordon Ramsay's shepherd pie. Oh, uh, <laughs> now it is a butter chicken, an Indian dish. I love Ooh, it. I'm, Everybody I'm, else loves it as well. I'm making that on on Saturday, actually. Oh, superb. Enough. Lots Ooh. of uh, new Greek. That ah, makes that, uh, I haven't got any of that. I was just going to miss that out. No. That's where I'm going wrong. No. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, who's your hero? Uh, it's an interesting one. I've been asked that before. Um, I find it difficult to name somebody that um, everybody would know. I think, you know, I take inspiration from a lot of the people that I've worked with, the guy that I mentioned earlier on. Um, so I think just ordinary folks that do something amazing to change their circumstances, that's that's who my um heroes um are uh, there's many of them there, there's not a single person but it's clients it's people for me um 
it's quite emotional when you see somebody come through something pretty awful and come out the other end. Everyday heroes is yeah. there is a lot to be said for that. Yeah. Shona Fleming, it's been great to hear your story. Thanks so much. Thank you. Pleasure. <laughs> Many thanks, Shona. And we'll be back with another episode in February. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.